Well, these Sundays, I'm ministering to you on the theme of the four-square gospel. We celebrated 100 years of our denomination last year, and this goes back to the very beginning where George Jeffries and others pioneered a Pentecostal movement in this country and other parts of the world. Under the banner headline, the four-square gospel, he used to read it out and say, we stand four square on the word of God. It was a revelation of God for the content of their message back in those days, and it's still the same for us today. We, we believe this. Jesus Christ, Savior, Healer, Baptizer in the Holy Spirit, and soon coming King. Today we're talking about Jesus Christ as the baptizer in the Holy Spirit. I do believe, as I mentioned, I think a couple of times already in this service, that God is getting ready to send a fresh wave of a move of God amongst us. For us personally, not just us, of course, God is doing wonderful things all over the world. I've just come back from Brazil, seeing what God is continuing to do there and different parts of Britain and Europe, London, and God is on the move. But it's all about the operation of God through his spirit who lives in the church. We're going to read Revelation 21, verses 1 to 3, which read, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold! The dwelling place of God is with man, and he will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. Then in verse 22, a little further down, we read this remarkable, surprising statement. I know John who's recording it must have been surprised. Verse 22, and I saw no temple in the city. For its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. I want to come, you to come with me to central West Africa. I want you to sit down with me underneath this shady mango tree. I want to reach out under the shade in that hot West African sun. Pluck a mango straight from heaven. And I want you to open it up, not like we do in the West. I'm talking about good old African style. Rip it open. Rip it, let it drip. Take that mango and enjoy it. Let the juice run down <laughs> to the hem of your agabada. Greatest proof of the existence of God and almost second to none would you have a foretaste of heaven. If you don't like mangoes, try avocados. 
or join me in a moment of bliss on earth as I sit down with a girl on both knees, two beautiful girls. My daughters, just, just, just in case. No, 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 no. I know, I know what you're thinking. Elizabeth, who's a grown woman now. Laura, our second child, went to be with Jesus at age 16. Two beautiful girls. I would hug them, kiss them, and say, I'm the happiest man alive. A taste of heaven. But even those things pale into insignificance when we start talking about the manifestation of the gift of God, Mr. Holy Spirit, who comes and manifests God to us. We're talking about Jesus, the baptizer in the Holy Spirit. I like the phrase. It's a biblical phrase. When we open the gospel pages at the beginning, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, we're introduced to two Baptists, John the Baptist and Jesus the Baptist. John is the one who baptized in water, and John's baptism developed and issued into Christian baptism, baptized in the name of Jesus. But alongside that, John would say, the one who's coming after me, I'm not so worthy as to undo his shoelaces. That one, he is the one who baptizes you in the Holy Spirit. Now that phrase, baptizer in the Spirit, or even baptism, I prefer the verb form because this is an active thing. We talk about the baptism in the Spirit, but really that phrase in the noun form doesn't occur in the New Testament. It's always dynamic, it's always in the verbal form, being baptized in the Holy Spirit, be uh, Jesus the baptizer. Introduced to us like that, and we know that that can mean so many different things, and Maybe a hundred years of reflection in our own denomination and, and much longer than that in other places, maybe we still have not got to the depths of what it means when Jesus is introduced as the baptizer in the Holy Spirit. Certainly it is an end time manifestation of Messiah. The one who dispenses the Spirit was Messiah introducing the end times it is an end-time gift, eschatological gift, showing that we participate in the Spirit. We are already in the, in, the, in the end times. But it's not the fullness. The fullness of this we've just read. When God's presence will be so manifest amongst his people that there will be no need of any temple. God himself will be the temple. Jesus anticipated this when they were boasting of their temple made with hands, and Jesus said, if you destroy this temple, my body, I will raise it up in three days. Showing that Jesus came to be the one who replaced the temple as the living presence of God. We beheld his glory, the glory of the only one of the Father, full of grace and truth. The word became flesh and tabernacled amongst us, and the glory of God was seen. God always had the plan and the vision and the purpose to have a people and dwell amongst them in the very beginning. He fellowshiped with them in person in the Garden of Eden. And when that presence 
was blocked because of sin, he immediately began to repair the way and to mend the way so that we could be in his presence. And, and it culminated in the tabernacle of the wilderness where Moses was told to construct a tent-like cathedral, all to be the place where God would dwell and his glory was so visible, the Shekinah glory of God, so visible. And, and God really did dwell there, but it did not contain him. Heaven, not even the highest heaven could contain him, as Solomon said, as he dedicated what replaced the tabernacle, that fixed building, the temple, which was the pride and joy of the people of Israel, desperately devastated when it was destroyed, sought very hard to see it rebuilt, and it was. But Jesus said, the time is coming when there will be no temple. I don't understand people, whether they're Jew or Gentile, fussing around some bricks and mortar somewhere in the Middle East and say that's where God dwells. Too late. He's got the heaven out of there. And now he dwells in living temples. He dwells in you. He dwells in me. But it's the fulfillment of God's promised presence, which is the heart of the covenant promise from Genesis through Revelation. I will be your God, and you will be my people. And that's what it means when we start talking about the baptism of the Holy Spirit. It means, above all else, the promise of God's presence, not just his everywhere presence, of which we may or may not be conscious at any given moment, but it's the manifest presence of God in which we know and manifestly know and experience his presence because God is a God who is real. It's not just something that you work on in your mind. It is something that you can experience and it can affect your very body. I'm not just talking about manifestations of healing, but over the years we have seen the physical and emotional effects of the Holy Spirit when the Holy Spirit falls on people. More than 20 years ago, as I was, well, much more than 20 years ago, I was very young, very bold, and very fiery, and not much wisdom. Um, now I'm old and bold and fiery, and the wisdom I leave up to you. But we had people coming from all different denominations into these big meetings, and, uh, and there was a lot of murmuring, murmuring going on in a certain group. I would not mention the name, because I wouldn't want the Methodists to be, oops, to be embarrassed. Okay. All right, so they came forward and they said, this is terrible. When you pray for people, they fall on the ground. This is wrong. So I didn't argue, I demonstrated. The platform was high enough, but I climbed onto the pulpit, which was even higher, precariously balancing over the edge, and I brought them forward. Come closer, come closer. I could fall at any moment. And they were stepping out of the way. I said, why are you frightened? Well, you don't want to fall on us. Why? Well, you'll hurt us. We'll fall over. Aha, I said, God is heavier than me. The miracle is not that you fall over if God manifests his presence. The miracle is if you can stand up in his presence. Having said that, we do not put store by external manifestations. Because there are some people who uh, seem to be highly, highly touched by God and uh, they get up the same as they went down. And others do not necessarily appear outwardly to be touched, but the inward work was amazing. I was baptized into the Holy Spirit on February the 14th, okay. 72. 
And that experience was so awesome, there's no doubt about it, so I guess in the way I'm describing it, you will see it, it, there was a level of emotion. But the emotion was one of holy awe. It wasn't noisy. There was this welling up of words which began to pour out of me. And when I first began to speak in tongues, amazing. It was as if I was saying what I'd always longed to say to someone, but I didn't know who, and I didn't know what it was to say. And in that experience, not knowing much about the New Testament, I was a fairly new believer, I had a clear impression of Acts chapter 2, him being exalted to the Father's right hand as poured out what you both see and hear. But the week before my first introduction, to a charismatic prayer group. It was an unofficial prayer group belonging to Holy Trinity Brompton. So, uh, next time you meet an HTB person, say, it's all your fault what happened to Colin Dye. But the previous week, 7th of February, it was very emotional. I had so much joy. There was so much, I could feel so much emotion. So, you, you can't judge an experience by how emotionally affected you are or how emotionally affected you aren't. It's a spiritual thing, but often, often, there are many of these things that go alongside encounters with God. So we know that on the day of Pentecost, there was that first experience that the church experienced, 120 people, of being baptized in the Holy Spirit. In Acts chapter 1, Jesus says to them in verse 4, And while staying with them, he ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, you heard from me. So Jesus had taught about it. For John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not so many days from now. So we have this word baptism what does it mean? It's as if John said, well, you know, when I baptize you, I put you in the water, and I take you out again. We do that here, too. When we baptize you in water, have no fear. We will bring you up out of the water again. However, for some of you, we might leave you under long enough for your life to flash before your eyes, and when we know you've truly repented, we bring you up. But you, you go down in order to come up. It's dying and rising with Christ. But the baptism in the Spirit, there's another baptistry. The invisible baptistry of the Holy Spirit. And this one, when Jesus baptizes you, he takes you and he plunges you into Holy Spirit and he keeps you there. We're not just to be momentarily immersed. We're to dwell in his presence. And that's the image of us being in the Spirit, but it also works the other way around, like a sponge put into water. Not only is the water in the sponge, but when the sponge begins to soak, the water comes into the sponge. And that's what it means to be living a life in the Holy Spirit. And this initiation into the life of the Spirit, the Bible calls being baptized in the Spirit. And we know, therefore, that on the day of Pentecost, Acts chapter 2, it happened. It happened. It was later referred to, uh, uh, that experience, in 
Acts chapter 10 and Acts chapter 11. Acts chapter 10, Peter is led by revelation to preach the gospel in the house of Cornelius, who was a Gentile. And Peter was reluctant. He had to have a vision from God because he didn't want to go and receive hospitality in a Gentile house. It meant in all likelihood he'd have to break the kosher laws and he wasn't into it. But God told him, don't call unclean what I've cleansed. And so Peter gladly goes and preaches the gospel. He's preaching. And while Peter is still speaking, read about this in Acts chapter 10, verse 44. While Peter was still saying these things, the Holy Spirit fell on all who heard the word. And the believers from among them, were the circumcised who had come with Peter, were amazed because the gift of the Spirit was poured out even on the Gentiles. For they were hearing them speaking in tongues and extolling God. A very important thing to underline. Come back to that. And Peter declared, could anyone withhold water for baptizing these people who have received the Holy Spirit just as we have? In other words, this wasn't just for the day of Pentecost. It was meant to be an ongoing experience, even as Peter said, the, on the day of Pentecost, the promise is for you and your children and your children's children for as many as the Lord will call. So we know it was not just a one-off experience for a handful of believers to inaugurate the era of the church on the day of Pentecost, but it is something that God wants for all believers. It's your right, your privilege today to receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. And some may say, well, how do I know whether I have received Stop right there. If you are in any doubt, I don't know whether I've received this gift, I can tell you, you haven't. Because when you have, you know about it. Now, I'm not talking about what it takes for you to become a believer. You are born again of the Holy Spirit, therefore every believer has the Holy Spirit. You can't be a believer without the Holy Spirit. It's the Holy Spirit that convicts you of sin. It's the Holy Spirit that transforms your nature. But you are not always conscious of the moment that that happens. I know in my life when I was born again in uh, 1971, just a few months before the description I was telling you about, I was away on holiday and uh, I'd been taken to a Christian meeting and my heart was opened. I heard the gospel preached clearly and genuinely I responded. I, I didn't fully understand until maybe a day or so later. It was December the 24th and I, I said, I'm going to now look at this stuff and I don't know, maybe God was already underlining the teaching ministry. So I had a big Bible as a big black King James Bible, a real version of Thompson's chain reference Bible. And I felt ever so like a scholar. And I opened up and then I, I, I wrote at the top, making my notes. And this is what I wrote. God has come into my life through Jesus Christ and the Holy Spirit. I've still got that piece of paper today. And I looked back at that and I thought, wow, that's what's happened. I, don't, I, I wasn't conscious of the moment. It would have been in the last 28, 24, 48 hours. But Jesus spoke of this experience and says, just as 
the wind is, so is the one born of the Spirit. You don't know where the wind is coming from, where the wind is going. It is a mysterious work of the Holy Spirit in our hearts, and we don't necessarily know what's happening, when it's happening, but we feel the results, we feel the effects. However, when it comes to the gift of the Spirit, the baptism in the Spirit, we know about it, as I will show you as we go through. And so here we have this wonderful promise. As I'm already implying, it is a conscious experience. I believe we can put it like this. We can say being born again is sometimes an unconscious experience. We're not always aware of the moment that happens. We see the effects and the results. But everybody who is a believer has the Holy Spirit living in them. If you do not have the Spirit, you're not a believer yet. Okay? This is something different. We find every single time when believers are baptized in the Holy Spirit, and by the way, there's a whole range of terms which are pretty synonymous, being baptized with the Spirit, the Holy Spirit coming upon you, Holy Spirit falling upon you, receiving the Holy Spirit, receiving the gift of the Spirit, being, being filled with the Spirit. All of these are dynamic expressions to sort of say, you, you will know when it happens to you. It's an experience. It's wonderful, wonderful, wonderful. So many times... On a daily basis, in fact, in our Christian lives, we have to remind ourselves, God is with me whether I feel it or not. Amen? Try that tomorrow morning and you'll need it probably. When you're wondering if, if it's resurrection day and you feel, well, I jolly well needed to get out of bed on time Monday morning. You don't always feel stuff. And we teach you, it's very right, not to rely on your feelings. Feelings come and feelings go. But God is not just something that you think about and meditate on in your mind. God is real. He's living. He will cause you to know he's with you. There will be dynamic experiences. And this definitive one in which the Holy Spirit comes in a conscious way, fills your life and takes up grand residence in your house, your home, your body, God's dwelling place with you. It's conscious. Also, Slightly controversially to some because many of our evangelical friends who are not Pentecostal or charismatic in theology will teach that you get it all when you're born again. The baptism of the Spirit, they say, relates to the same thing as being born again. However, when we go through the New Testament, the book of Acts, where this is ex experience is spelled out, without exception, in every instance when the Spirit of God is poured out upon people, when people are baptized in the Holy Spirit, it always follows faith. In other words, it's a promise to God's children. It's something that is in additional to believing. Now, sometimes that's not always hard to see. In fact, in the, not always easy to see. In fact, in Acts chapter 10, Peter is preaching, and while he's preaching, the Spirit comes upon the people. They start speaking in tongues, and his sermon is interrupted. And so, rightly, you might conclude that this appears to be simultaneous, that when they believed, at that moment, they also received. But when you analyze it, Peter later was able to point to the their reception of the gift of the Spirit as proof pointing to the faith that had to be there first 
in order for it to happen. So it would have been very almost simultaneous. They believed and received. And that's quite unusual. Another unusual passage which makes my point strongly is Acts chapter 8, the believers in Samaria. Philip is preaching, a revival breaks out, people are getting saved and healed and delivered, but the text says the Spirit of God had not yet fallen on any of them. There was a delay. Not long. I estimate around 10 days. And they, had, they went up to Jerusalem, brought the apostles, said, you've got to see this, and the apostles prayed for them, and they received the Spirit. So whether it's almost simultaneous or whether there is a delay of 10 days, and by the way, that's the longest example of a delay in the New Testament. Don't, you don't have to delay. Jesus said, wait, but he said, you've got to wait till I get to heaven and send the gift. But from that moment, you don't have to wait. Wait on God, but the Spirit's already here. You get me? All right. So, yeah, it follows faith. So the first precondition or in fact the only real precondition, that and openness to God, is to be a genuine believer in Jesus. This is a gift God gives to his children. And so it's a conscious experience. It follows faith. And um, to my mind, as I look at the evidence of the New Testament, it is always accompanied by phenomena. Let me use this. I got it out of my mouth now, so it's too late to, to, to change it. It is a phenomenological experience. In other words, something happens to confirm that it has happened. On the day of Pentecost, it's easy to say what it was. They spoke with tongues. Acts chapter 8, it's not mentioned what it was, but it was something significant enough for Simon the magician to say, hey, hey, I'll give you some money. I'd like to, do, I'd like to be able to do that as well. And they said, no, no, this, you, 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 doesn't go, you, this is not for money. This is a gift from God. Acts chapter 10, they spoke with tongues. Acts chapter 19, well, actually, let me read it because this is a very important point here. It says, they were hearing them speaking in tongues and extolling God. Come back to that point. Because in Acts chapter 19, when Paul meets some disciples, people hadn't heard about the day of Pentecost. And John, uh, Pete, Paul meets them and he, he sees there's something lacking. In other words, this makes a difference, a discernible difference. Not that Paul was judging them and maybe he was moving in apostolic discernment, but he asked them this question, did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? Meaning it's possible to believe and not have yet received. And they said, what are you talking about the Holy Spirit? With no idea the Holy Spirit had been given. So he said, what was your baptism? Oh, we were baptized into the teaching of John. Ah, okay. John was pointing to another. So you put your faith in Jesus and then he baptized them for the first time that John's baptism was not fully Christian baptism. He baptized them. And only when he laid hands on them and prayed for them did they receive the Spirit of God. And this is what it says in Acts chapter 19, verse 5. On hearing this, they were baptized. That's water baptism in the name of Jesus. And when Paul had laid his hands on them, the Holy Spirit came on them. And they began speaking in tongues and prophesying. 
Okay. Speaking in tongues and prophesying. Do you know that there is a long line of Bible teaching from Old Testament right the way through to the New Testament that links the presence of God's Spirit in a person's life and the release of prophecy? Did you know that? Remember when Saul was touched by God, he began to prophesy. And you remember way back there in the book of Numbers, when God was trying to minister to Moses because Moses was exhausted. He had restructured the church according to an ancient form of a cell vision so that the whole church would be divided into, or the whole group of people would be divided into groups so that they can minister effectively. And he still got exhausted. And so God said, here's the solution. I will take the spirit that is on you, Moses, and put the spirit on the elders of God's people so that they can share the load. You have to carry the spirit of your leader. And so he called a meeting. All the elders of Israel gathered apart from two. It's always some people who don't show up to the meeting. And when Moses, God did what, uh, what he said, and the, spirit, the, the Holy Spirit that was upon Moses, that same anointing came upon all of the leaders, and they began to prophesy. When the Spirit comes, prophetic speech is a characteristic sign of the Spirit's presence. But those who were in the meeting, they prophesied, and then they stopped. Everything done, done deal. But the two guys who hadn't come to the meeting, the Spirit came on them wherever they were, and they started to prophesy and kept on prophesying. And Joshua, Moses' assistant, said, this is terrible. Moses, come and look at this. You've got to stop them. They're chasing your mandaraka. Any Kenyans or Tanzanians here, Kiswahili speakers? Any? Okay. Ukuwapi. Huh? Where are you? I just heard you. Was that a vo- Oh, ah, karibu, karibu san. Unajua, unajua mandaraka. She knows the word. Don't worry, I'm coming to English. <laughs> I use it and I keep it in Swahili because there is no effective translation in any language apart from Swahili. Mandaraka. It's when you see somebody in a position, they've been promoted and they're enjoying life. And you say, I want it. It means you are chasing their mandaraka. You want their promotion, even if you have to steal it. (laughs) Sorry, Kenyan friends. So Joshua said, Moses, you are the prophet here. You get to do the prophesying. These guys are trying to usurp your position, so tell them to stop it. And Moses smiled, and I interpolate my version into the original version. He says, Joshua, dear boy, dear boy, you are so jealous for me. I wish that all God's people were prophets and that he'd put his spirit on all of them. So Moses' desire was that God's people would become a prophetic people, that the Spirit of God would be upon them all, and they would all prophesy. And Moses' wish, which was from reflecting the heart of God, becomes the express 
promise of God in Joel chapter 2. It shall come to pass afterwards that I will pour out of my spirit upon all flesh. Your sons and daughters shall prophesy. Doesn't stop there. Goes on to talk about a whole range of things. So when the spirit of God comes on you and you start to prophesy, prophetic speech flows from you. It is entirely consistent. On the day of Pentecost, they spoke with tongues and they were heard speaking in various languages, praising and magnifying God. It was a new form of prophetic speech that signaled a new era of the Holy Spirit, the new covenant promise. And this is carried through throughout the rest of the book of Acts. However, however, nowhere is it so clearly stated that that's the only way the Holy Spirit manifests himself when you're being baptized in the Spirit. Amen and amen. So if somebody says to me, you know, I never spoke with tongues, I've never prophesied, but I've just healed three dead people, I'll say that'll do. That'll do. In our statement of faith, the assemblies of God pin it down to the tongues being initial evidence, and I, I, I agree with that, I, I believe that, but it's not limited to that. So, so if somebody is clearly spirit-filled, moving in signs and wonders and the power of God and, and, and so on and so on, I wouldn't say, oh, you haven't spoken in tongues. So therefore, you're not baptized in the spirit. But we can expect that. And anyway, the gift of tongues is such a, such a beautiful gift that it's surely not wrong to ask God to release you into that gift, whether or not you have been baptized in the Spirit or tie it with the baptism of the Spirit. It's, it's, it's a small point. But let me just show you how you have to be careful when you're interpreting the Word of God here. All right, remember I said from Acts chapter 10 that they spoke with God, uh, spoke with tongues and extolled God. Here in Acts chapter 19, it says something quite specific. It says... They began to speak with tongues and to prophesy when Paul laid hands on them. I'm not splitting hairs, but just, just ask yourself, what does this mean? They spoke with tongues and prophesied. I'm going to release you into Bible exegesis now. Does it mean they all spoke with tongues and they all prophesied? Does it mean some spoke with tongues, some prophesied? Does it mean they only spoke with tongues, which was a form of prophetic speech? All of those three possible readings are, are okay, to me, it's possible. So what that tells me is this, is that you don't get so hung up on one gift, such as speaking in tongues, and try to squeeze everything that the Holy Spirit wants to do into that one manifestation. However, there's enough evidence here to show that you are likely to have prophetic speech flow from you. Somebody once came to me and said, must I speak with tongues? Do I have to speak in tongues? I said, you don't have to do anything. You don't even have to go to heaven if you don't want to. <laughs> must I? No, no, you're asking the wrong question. Must I? Answer, no. May I? The answer is yes. So, the key point is, is that it's an experience that follows faith. It's additional to believing, 
but it's a conscious experience at which there will be a manifestation of God's spirit in your life. Amen and amen. So my question is this, what's it all about? What's it there for? You see, I've entitled subtitles, foretaste or a taste of heaven. That's what I think it is, above everything else. The primary purpose of the baptism of the spirit is God fulfilling his promise to manifestly dwell amongst his people. It's the promise of his presence. All the 6,000 promises, by the way, I've not personally verified this, but I was told once by an American preacher there are 6,000 promises. He promised me that he had read them all and counted them all, so I'm just taking his word for it. Of all the 6,000 promises of God in the Bible, I read them really as aspects of one central promise. I believe in the end, God only promises us one thing. He promises us himself. And that's enough. So this is the promise of all promises. God says, I will be with you. I will never leave you. I will let the whole universe know in the new heavens and the new earth that you are my people and I am your God. I will dwell in the midst of you. I will manifest my presence in such a clear way amongst you that there will not even need to be a temple. My presence will be so real. And so now, while we're waiting for that manifestation which is to come, God gives us a foretaste. He says, until then, you are my temple. I will dwell among you as my people, but also in you as individuals. You are temples of the Holy Spirit. This is God showing up, manifesting his presence in such a clear way that we can say, wow, God, you're faithful to your word. But there are other things. That's the principal purpose. There are other things as well. Again, I say to you, I'm not necessarily giving you these in order of importance. It's hard to distinguish them, really. But there is certainly the promise of power. Acts 1, verse 8, you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you and you will be my witnesses. This is something the Pentecostals, we Pentecostals have been very good at emphasizing powerful witness, but there's much more to the Holy Spirit than this. That's important. And as we approach a summer where we are holding intentional evangelistic events all over London, your primary leader should already been getting you lined up for that if, you, if they haven't said to them, hey, 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 do your job, do your job. And we're supporting J. John's Emirates Crusade in the summer. We're having barbecues, and these aren't just, you know, nice social gatherings. These are gatherings which are intentional for preaching the gospel and bringing people to response. Between now and then, social, float like a butterfly, because the time is coming when we sting like a bee. In this season, we need the power of God without God's power. And I'm not just talking about signs and wonders and things. The power of God working in our lives to draw people to Jesus for this reason and this reason alone. Today, you need more of God. Secondly, assurance. Did you know that? Ephesians 1.13 says, In Him 
You also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, hearing, believing, then it goes on to say, you were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. The sealing is God's validation. It's the seal of approval. It's God's secure seal of approval validating you and declaring to the world that you belong to him. And this means, what it means in practice is the baptism of the Holy Spirit will, will give you levels of assurance of the presence of God and of your salvation, which are wonderful, amazing. It's also a seal of guarantee. It is the down payment. 2 Corinthians 1, verse 22, and he also has put his seal on us and given us his spirit in our hearts as a guarantee. Some Bible versions translate this literally as a deposit. So it's a marketing term or a term from, the, from marketing sales. Sales and marketing, you, you go to a shop, you want the goods, you say, I want that, I want that, and you put down a deposit and it guarantees it's yours. Also, you've got to come back and pay the rest of it. Yeah, but it's, it's a guarantee. That's your guarantee. That's your guarantee. So when God gives you a foretaste of heaven on earth, it's a guarantee that you are going to experience the fullness in times coming. And not only are you going to go to heaven, but heaven is going to come down to the earth. We saw that in Revelation 21. Beyond that, of course, familiarity for many Pentecostals and Charismatics, the baptism of the Spirit helps release the gifts of the Spirit. So in other words, it's, it's coming into a place in God where you become sensitive to the presence of God, power of God, the leading of the Holy Spirit, and, and, and the gifts of the Spirit flow automatically from that place. It doesn't always mean that you should be walking around feeling that you are constantly clothed with power from on high, you go to your boss tomorrow morning and say, hello, I'm God's man of power for this hour. But the capacity, when the Spirit of God has taken hold of your life, the capacity to move in any direction, manifest any gift that God wishes you to do, it's right there. You don't always have to do this like we do on a Sunday anointing with oil. You can, oil, you can go to a sick person. I'm ready. I'm coming for you. I'm coming for you. You ready? You trust me, yeah? You trust me? She doesn't trust me. You trust me? No, she doesn't. Do you trust me? Okay. I'm coming for you. So you're playing the role of a sick person in hospital. I'm playing the role of your cell leader. I'll say, hello. How are you? Get well. <laughs> That's an order. Oh, you jumped, you jumped. <laughs> you don't always have to go, Hila Mashila, 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 my machine gun Hila. <laughs> when, when, when you are full of the Holy Spirit, the supernatural becomes almost naturally supernatural. Do you know what I mean? Or there are moments when you become really, really conscious that God is about to do something very special, but it's a natural flow of the gifts and ministries of the Spirit of God when you've been baptized. Final thing, last but not least, I'm going to put it this way. Cell leaders, I've written notes for you on this, and I want you to take them, and after in your cell meetings, do it and pray for one another. But 
word I got in my notes is holiness. And I'm going to amend that little bit to say it's for a closer walk with Jesus. It's for a closer walk with Jesus. When you're full of the Holy Spirit, all he ever talks about is Jesus. You know when the Spirit's present because you see Jesus. Holy Spirit doesn't draw attention to himself so much as spotlight Jesus. And so this it stands to reason that if you've had a powerful encounter with the Holy Spirit, it will lead to a deepening of your spiritual life, growth in holiness, and a closer walk with Jesus. Wonderful, isn't it? So, how do you receive? Can the musicians come back? Of course, the real thing is about you need to be a believer in Jesus. Today, if you've not received Jesus as your savior, you've got to do that first. God's not going to seal the envelope until there's something in it. So it's about saying, Jesus, I need you as Lord and Savior in my life. I put my trust in you as the God who sent Jesus to save me. You're washed by the blood of Jesus. That's the born again experience. That's what qualifies you. Then you, once you become God's child, then, then, then you qualify. It's not as if you have to come to a certain standard of holiness before you're fit. This is a gift. It's not a reward for good behavior. Okay, you've been in Sunday school nine times out of ten over the last few weeks. You get it. No. God blesses us with the gift of his spirit. Thank you.